much money is too much money. Most liberal theorists talk about the need to alleviate poverty. But if you're serious about addressing inequality, shouldn't there be a cap on how much one person can have? I'm joined by Ingrid Robbins, a philosopher by trade, to talk about her new book, Limitarianism, the idea that for the good of everyone, we need to put a hard limit on how much people can hoard. Ingrid, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. You spend a lot of time in the book reassuring people that you're not a communist. What's wrong with us? <laughs> yes. So I, I tend to then ask, what's your definition of communism? So I do think I say explicitly USSR style communism. Mm -hmm. I, I don't believe in that kind of system also because most importantly, it was politically oppressive. Mm -hmm. um, but... Uh, I'm also, so that is the, the honest answer, but I'm also trying to uh, take people along with me. So, uh, yeah. So I also think I would like to have, and I can have in academia, an honest discussion about different economic systems. And so, for example, there is among philosophers a whole debate about democratic socialism and different types of economic systems. But uh, I fear that... Um, if I were to say on the first page, let's have a discussion about all the different economic systems that are conceivable, uh, I will lose so many of the readers. And my goal with this book has really been to try to reach as many people as possible, because I do think we really have a political urgency right now. So is it about getting a fair hearing that if you were to say, okay, I reject USSR style communism, but I do believe that certain things should be communally owned. The market isn't a good way to distribute resources, that there should be a movement yeah. of the working class. You're saying, if I say these things, people will write me off. Yeah, and I do say, that's also why I, I, I put in the introduction two kind of objections I've received. One is that it's not just me, but people who make this kind of argument for limits to wealth, either we're jealous, mm -hmm. and so that's why we shouldn't be taken seriously, or we're communists. And that's why we shouldn't be taken seriously. And the, what I found really sad about the, the communism charge is that people who make this, it's not even an argument, this claim, they just believe there are two systems, the system we have and communism. And that's so sad because what you were just describing to me sounds like what economists call a mixed economy. Social democracy would have that too. So there is varieties of different type of systems. And I, 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 do, I do believe actually that's a discussion we should be having. Uh, and that's also the work I want to do over the next years to look at all these different systems and all the different mixes. But first I had to make this <laughs> argument about why we should just reduce inequality urgently. And also just, yeah, um, believe and, and accept that at some point it's enough. We're going to come back to communism, I promise. But just to start <laughs> with, I guess, the foundational premise of the book. What's the problem with someone getting filthy rich? There are multiple problems. I'll start with the one that I think uh, is most accessible for um, everybody to, I hope, accept. And that is that uh, it's basically the symmetrical point of, of uh, poverty. So we we all say, no, it's bad that people live in poverty. So we want to uh, avoid or eliminate poverty. And the, the point is that you can just also ask, say, argue for the reverse. At some point, just like in the case of poverty, you don't have enough money to live a meaningful life. If you have too much money, it also doesn't add anything. And in a, in a world with, which is on fire, which has all these, um, uh, all these poor people, all these people who ha don't have their needs met, 
uh, it's wasteful. So that is, I think, a very important argument that that I think is kind of that I hope is um, swallowable for a large group of people. But then, I mean, there are all these other arguments which really have to do with the harms of uh, extreme wealth concentration, harms to do with democracy. Um, uh, it's un you, you can't have extreme wealth concentration together with ecological sustainability. It's often based on exploitation and other forms of, of uh, fundamental rights violation and then uh, the most what i think the most fundamental philosophical argument is that it cannot be deserved you ca you we can i so some philosophers reject the notion of deserve all desert altogether i don't but i really think there's only only a very small space in our m political arguments for desert and uh, so nobody can deserve to be a multimillionaire in all of your years of research and your examination of people who you would call excessively wealthy, mm -hmm. have you ever come across what you might describe as an ethical fortune? What would be an ethical fortune? Well, one where it isn't steeped in exploitation, unfairness, hoarding, bending the rules, opting out of society, creating social harms through the way in which you amass your fortune. Yeah. Is there such a thing as so an ethical fortune? I do... At least, so let me say two things. One is, I think it's a theoretical possibility. and But this was indeed the, the what we in my research group called the hard case. <laughs> so when, and you can imagine that somebody who, for example, comes from a non-privileged background and uh, has the luck of, uh, I think this is really how the markets work, like, and you are, say, for example, a DJ or you have a, you're a musician, and you just happen to be very lucky that your uh, your song or your film or your book picks up. Uh, and then you, because uh, of the way markets work and the way also um, cultural taste works, you just become a, a billionaire. Um, so I, I can imagine that somebody like this would, would would I, I still think their their wealth would be undeserved, but they may not have blood on their hands. Well, take Beyonce, who I think is as close as you can get to a deity on mm -hmm. earth. She quite clearly has earned a lot of her money through being phenomenally talented. Mm -hmm. But her and her husband, the bulk of their wealth isn't coming from the fact that they're selling records. It comes from putting that money into a property portfolio, which then feeds back into a system yeah. of overall unfairness, right? So you might be able to become a millionaire or a multimillionaire yeah. through your talents, but to become a billionaire. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So so it's true. So you're making a very interesting distinction, which is how you created the original wealth and then how you then further, I mean, they use the phrasing, let that wealth grow, which is like weird because, or work, work <laughs> for you. I mean, there's nobody working to for that wealth. It just uh, well, yes, there are people working, but not for your wealth. Anyway, this is a digression. Um, so, but uh, let's take. Uh, so, I'm hesitant to give us an example, uh, Jakey Rowling, because of her uh, transphobic uh, uh, statements uh, over the years. But let's put that aside, and let's uh, look at somebody like her. I mean, she's, and I don't know enough about Beyonce, but. Before they started to then put their wealth in, say, uh, uh, shares and and in the whole financial industry where there are these wealth protectors. I mean, if you happen to um, 
write a book like the Harry Potter series and then uh, just be lucky. Because that's the crucial thing for me, lucky to sell millions and millions of copies. I don't think that there is something like in that first phase of the wealth building or wealth accumulation that is that is tainted. At least it may be, but I, then you would have to delve into the details. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a theoretical possibility. But my, uh, my, and that's why I think the argument from dessert is so important because I believe that on any multimillionaire, at least one or multiple of the arguments I give in my book apply. And the dessert argument applies also to J.K. Rowling and to uh, Beyonce and to um, Oprah Winfrey and whoever. Yeah. Um, you outline sort of three ways in which to make limitarianism happen. the structural action, fiscal action and ethical action. Could you just define those terms for our audience? Yeah. So the structural is really how we set up the economy. And that's uh, some philosophers call that pre-distribution. So, for example, um, to give an example how we shouldn't do it, uh, so Elon Musk, for example, um, just does not want to recognize labor unions. If you have an economy with or without labor unions, that makes a big difference for how then what economists call the primary income distribution will look like. So um, And so that's the balance between labor and capital yes, if you're looking at it through a Marxist exact, lens. Yes. So basically that first question, like how do we divide up uh, the what, what we produce together, um, that depends on how we, on, on the power balance in society and on, on the institutions. And so that's the first, um, the first part, the pre-distribution. Then once you have the distribution, what comes out of the system, um, we have the fiscal system, taxation and, and, uh, and benefits and subsidies that might make that less uh, unequal. Uh, so that's the second part. And um, and I, that second part is right now quite important. I mean, if we didn't have uh, the, the fiscal system, uh, inequalities would be even worse. And I also think that's where in the fiscal action, there's some, some low-hanging fruit in terms of uh, changes. Um, and then there is the ethical, which is a kind of uh, plays two roles. It's basically just like what we, can we decide to do either as persons, as families or as group of people. Uh, and it is um, where you, there can be two reasons to do this. And one is that uh, if we have, what you just discussed, somebody who just had a huge strike of luck, uh, who... Um, I mean, this is an, a theoretical example, but suppose you have a really fair economy and um, somebody still happens to become very, very rich. I think they should, should still ask themselves, don't I have too much? Or are there not injustices where my money could be put to good to better use? So that's why I think we need, uh, even in a, in a perfect world, I still think we need this individual responsibility, but it should be, um, we should minimize what it should do in the system. Uh, and then the other reason is, uh, well, pretty pragmatic. Like we have a very unjust system. So right now the question is, we, sh we can't just point to the system and say, okay, the system uh, is unfair, but yeah, the system should change, but that's not my responsibility. So uh, I can keep my money. So I really want to play on all those levels. I mean, we've talked about one bearded prophet, Karl Marx, but moving to another one, Jesus Christ, is there 
an element of this book which has come from Christian theology and what's written in the Bible about wealth. Yeah. I mean, Jesus is very clear. He's like, you are not getting into heaven with any of that. There is a sense of there being an ethical imperative to give away your wealth. I mean, did any of that inform your idea of libertarianism? No. So I was uh, born in Belgium and and officially raised as a Catholic. Uh, but really, um, and so that means I went to a Catholic school, which which is where we also studied uh, loosely some parts of the Bible. So that means that the last time I had a Bible in my hands was when I was uh, 17 and I'm now 51. So <laughs> yeah, I should say I had a, a PhD student who, who had studied both uh, theology and um, philosophy. And once in a while, uh, he came up with these examples. It's not actually not just in uh, Christianity, but in other religions mm. too, that you have uh, yeah, very... You have, you have zakat in Islam where you're supposed yeah. to give away a fixed percentage of your wealth. Yeah, and, and there are, um, I think in all religions you have, um, well, or you have just like every seven years you redistribute the whole thing. I mean, yeah, no, but I, so it may be, I think there may be some influence like in the culture, but definitely not in, in my own, uh, it's definitely not in my own inspiration. Well, I, was, I was going to say, being born in Belgium, you do have a political tradition that you don't really have in the UK, which is Christian social democracy, which is still politically and culturally very yeah. powerful in Europe in a way that it never really got going here. Yes. I don't think I was really, um, I mean, I've, I've, I've met over the years um, people who work explicitly in that tradition, but I, they weren't on the, on the back of my mind when I was writing this book. But I should say one thing I really recognize is that if you try to write a book, I mean, you are, there are so many people who've nourished my thinking. And I've tried really to acknowledge as many as I could, but I'm sure I failed. It's almost impossible that you, but uh, yeah, over if you discuss questions of uh, distributive justice, as I've been doing for yeah, 30 years, there's so many uh, people who've influenced me. Uh, and surely uh, this is one group uh, too, yeah. One of the things that really strikes me every time I go to Belgium or the Netherlands is that obviously there is wealth inequality, but it is a lot less showy or gaudy than it might be in a country in the United States where someone's wealth is really hitting you over the head. I guess, was there a sense of a cultural distaste for, you know, obvious wealth inequality, which kind of steered you in this direction? Yes, I, I just, uh, yes, I do have that distaste. <laughs> but as a philosopher, my tastes are kind of irrelevant. <laughs> the arguments have to do the work. Uh, and um, But it might make you want to make a certain yeah, argument, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I just feel, I mean, that's also why I, I for example, give this example in the book of um, cycling with my, my oldest child, passing by a homeless person. And the fact that, that, uh, that my child already just says like, I mean, how, why do we do this as a society? I have that, uh, that kind of almost instinctive reaction too. And I just, uh, I don't know where this comes. It may be because you're raised in a, in a society that is more egalitarian than say the US. But uh, it may also, I really don't know. I'm also, I also sometimes think that's just who I am. Yeah. You talk about decamillionaires 
in the book as sort of the point in which you become excessively wealthy when it's 10 million euro or 10 million pounds mm-hmm. and upwards. So I live in London. I have a husband <laughs> and a cat to feed, right? That cat might want to go to university one day. I don't know. Yeah. Um, how much money can I have before it breaches the limit of limitarianism? Yeah. So I cannot answer this question because I need contextual information. But what I try to do in the book is to give the reasons that we should go through to answer that question. And I would actually, I, w- I would have liked to write a book without a number because everybody starts to talk about the number. And for me, the number is not so important. But there were uh, two reasons I had to have a number. One is to get the conversation going. And the other one is also, for me, the number cannot be one billion. I agree we should eliminate uh, billionaire fortunes, but that is just not uh, morally ambitious enough. If you have like, say, 100 million or 200 million, it's too much in this world, given that it's like you mentioned earlier, it's unlikely that it's not stained in blood, that it's not based on exploitation or some other uh, grave injustice. But also like, how can you want to keep that money if, uh, or how can you, how do we, how can we want to have an economic system that allows people to have so much money, uh, given all the suffering? So, so I do think the number discussion is important in that sense that, especially in the U.S., there are all these people that just talk about, yeah, yeah, we should get rid of billionaires. Uh, an example is there was a report called the um, um, Global Tax uh, Evasion Report, something like that, where Joseph Stiglitz wrote the preface, and he argued against, he argued that there is a problem with billionaires hiding their wealth. And yes, that is a big problem. Actually, the fact that people have billions is a problem. But why wouldn't it be a problem that somebody has 100 million? So, but it may be that in London, you may need more than like I say, the ethical limit is 1 million. I can see that in London, this might be too low, but would you need 10 million? It's a very expensive cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you need to talk with your cat. <laughs> I mean, you say that you you didn't really want to put a number to it. Instead, you wanted to develop a process of thinking yeah. about money that people could um, participate in. What would that process look like? So, you know, here I am. I'm earning, you know, roughly the average salary for the UK. I'm not really on the path to 10 million, but maybe I want it. Maybe I want 10 million one day. Where do I begin my ethical journey? But then I would really, the first thing I would ask if I were uh, in your shoes is, why would you want 10 million? I, I don't see the point of wanting to want 10 million. Also because all the psychological research really says that if you want to have so much, you will always shift your goalpost and it will become like an addiction. And there's also some research that suggesting that you that people who are in this frame of mind actually become uh, not so nice people. That there's even I read some uh, some study that um, um, that where it's reported that even the the um, uh, mirror neurons, like these things that allow you to be empath- empathetic to other people, that they become lower if you uh, become very rich. So I think just accepting that. So I think, yes, we can have aspirations, but just giving that a kind of a, um, putting a stop to where, to how far those aspirations go is, uh, I think, liberating. 
that's actually also what some of the multimillionaires that I that I interviewed for my book said. They just felt it was liberating to get a, get off uh, to get away with their uh, fortunes. And I spoke uh, a businesswoman a couple of weeks ago in the Netherlands who has a, a financial advisory company. She says all the employees have fixed salary. There's no bonuses, and and when there's profit, every year all the profit is given away. She says, "So nice. I never have to think about this money. Every year it all goes away." And that kind of mindset, I think, is, I think, would help us both as individuals and as society. But all of that is individual. But in the book, really, most of the chapters are about societal reasons, about structural reasons. And I think we should really have a, a public conversation about um, the the political reasons why we shouldn't want to have the amount of wealth concentration we currently have. I mean, we're going to get to the social stuff in a minute, but just sticking with the individual for a second. When you don't have money, you look at people with lots of it and you go, wow, you must not have to worry about money. Is the thing that you're saying that you never stop worrying about money? It's, it, yeah. That you start panicking about protecting it or hoarding it, that a different sort of anxiety kicks in. Yeah. So my my sense is that the the very rich are really um a mixed mixed group. It's not like they they you can say one thing that applies to all of them. Um but it's certainly some of the research shows that yes, even the the multimillionaires keep having anxieties and then um so there was this uh research by uh, the ethnographer uh Rachel Sherman, who interviewed people in New York, households in New York, who have multiple millions of dollars, and they come up with these kind of scenarios, like often there is uh, heterosexual couples, there is a husband and a wife, the wife works in, in Wall Street, the, the, the mother then, that she manages the people who work in the household, and then does uh, volunteer work in the school, and then they have this scenario, yes, they have to keep that money, because what if he loses his job? which means the whole family loses healthcare, and then at exactly the same time, one of the children gets cancer. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, and that, but that's, that also, if these are really the concerns that people have and not just like um, stories they make up to justify why they keep on to that, well, that's also a possibility. The question is really, why don't we talk about what is needed to take away those insecurities? And that is really um, socializing risks. It's a national healthcare system, it's a public pension system, and so on. What do you think of the argument that the effective altruists would make, that they have a moral obligation to make as much money as they can, to put that money towards addressing the long-term crises facing humanity? Yeah, so I think there are um, at least two problems with the effective altruists, despite the fact that I like the fact that they want us to make think about how much we need. Uh, one is that many of them are not very political. They really work, their unit of analysis is the individual, whereas really we should, I, I, I want to have both the unit of analysis, the individual and the structures, but the structures are primary. We should fix the structures as much as we can and then, then the, what the individual should do is secondary except that the individual should actually try to change the structures, but that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's one problem. So, I mean, if you just give away your money, I mean, they, some of them even believe that you should, it's fine to have a, a, a job in the city. I mean, like have what I would think is 
problematic, morally problematic job, but because you earn so much money, you're actually being really good because then you can give it away. I think there's something really weird in that argument. That's a problem. And then the other problem is the focus that some of them have on the long term. I understand the long term if you're thinking about, say, climate change, but really, I mean, there are people dying today. So, yeah. I mean, there's a whole chapter of this book dedicated to taking apart philanthropy. Mm -hmm. What are the problems of philanthropy? Yes, so I think there are many problems and it's interesting that uh, um, political philosophers tend to kind of overwhelmingly agree on what those problems are. The most important one is that it's not democratic. It's undemocratic. Of course, the problem with philanthropy is also, in reality, uh, that it's often uh, a cloak for um, trying to cover up the dirty sources of the money. It's also uh, a way in, in which people try to um, improve their reputation. So these are like the worst case scenarios that I'm actually even putting aside in the book. It's also sometimes used as a way to uh, avoid paying taxes or to channel money to, to your children. So all these things are like, I think, yeah, abuse. Of, so I put aside abuse of philanthropy, assuming that we agree that that is uh, something we shouldn't want. So then we are left with the philanthropists who are really well-meaning. Well, there, there are multiple problems. I think the, fa the lack of democratic um, decision-making is an important one. And there's also this epistemic argument that how can they know what really is most needed? Uh, and there the effective altruists actually have, have an argument because they say you should try to maximize impact. So you should not donate to... Uh, a university, but you should actually give to malaria prevention. I actually like that aspect of effective altruism, that they, they are radical in that sense, that they say, yeah, even if uh, the most effective thing is something very unpopular like uh, dewarming children, yeah, that's then why you should, where your money should go. But uh, it's very unpolitical and um, we really need um, to make... Um, political decisions about how to redistribute money. And um, it's also sometimes they're buying their way into um, organizations that then sort of morally corrupt the organizations. So there are increasingly even people in, um, in the art sector who say, well, this money really steers the way we're, we're uh, doing our work. So it changes the... Well, it's leverage, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. From the point of view of the philanthropist, yes. But do we as a society want uh, uh, artists and uh, universities and other organizations to, to do that what philanthropists want us to do? I mean, the, the problem is that money starts to really, the logic of money and the desires of those who have most money starts to kind of um, take over whole of society. So thinking about what it does to a society, what, what does, you know, huge concentrations of wealth do, you know, at a national level and a global level? Yes, I I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm also I'm all, almost wanting to say like, where should I start? <laughs> <laughs> There's so many, uh, and that's really the bulk of the book. So, um, so one problem is really the way it changes our democracy. Um, so, uh, and here also the context depends. For example, on the regulations that you have in a country, um, but. Um, 
it undermines the political principle of one person, one vote, because um, they uh, buy their influence, so very rich people can buy their influence into politics via um, sponsoring uh, gifts to political parties or political uh, candidates. British politicians, by the way, are very cheap to buy. <laughs> Embarrassingly cheap to buy. It takes millions of dollars of campaign funding in the US. Here, we'll be like, what's that? Tickets to the horse racing? Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Embarrassing. Yeah, so, so it's interesting that in the Netherlands we had a, a, a sort of a... Yeah, I don't know whether it's a scandal, but at least political discussion, because a couple of years ago, a donation was made of one million euros uh, to the Christian Democratic Party when they were just debating um, exemptions to inheritance taxation for people who have uh, a firm that they want to give to their children. Uh, and then there was uh, actually all parties except the extreme right, agreed that there should be a cap on how much you can give per person per year to political parties, limited to 100,000 euros. Of course, for most families, 100,000 euros is like like 10 times the savings they have on their bank account. So it's for most of us, it's like, even that is inconceivable. But of course, if you are a multimillionaire, if you have 100 million, 100,000 is... Uh, is, or even if you have 100 million and you want to give a million, it's 1%. So the opportunity cost of giving away that money is, might be actually for your own life, might be zero, whereas you can buy influence. So I think that is good. But then again, what we see is that there's always these tactics of, tra of finding loopholes, expanding the loopholes. So anyway, politics, it's uh, the way it undermines democracy is uh, political parties, lobbying. Lobbying is really a big problem. I mean, you can hire lobbyists. Um, it's also uh, buying up media. I mean, uh, you, we all know the story of the Murdochs. It's, uh, yeah. And, and then there's think tanks. The think tanks have been very important in spreading neoliberal ideology. So there are many ways, if you have a lot of money, in which you can influence politics broadly understood, not just parties and policies, but also what we talk about in society. So that's one important, uh, the first one, politics. So, right, this brings me back, I'm afraid, to Karl Marx, because Marx gives you a reason for why good things aren't happening. He says the politics you have is an expression of the class forces mm -hmm. you have in society. And you, you agree here, mm -hmm. you're saying the politics we have is an expression of these huge and obscene concentrations mm -hmm. of wealth. So then Marx says, in order to make anything happen, you need a counterweight. And that counterweight is a movement of the majority of people. He calls it the proletariat class, and it will express itself through organized labor. Yeah. So I come back to, well, why aren't you a <laughs> communist? Because yeah. Marx gives you the, the how and the why. Yeah. So it, it, I, it, I actually should also rephrase my first, it depends on how you define communism. Mm. I don't object to communism if it's understood as uh, changing class relations. Actually, I think we should. It's only that the word class, I try to introduce it in my book, and I do, I also, uh, but it's again a word I, so this is a kind of strategic choice I made as a writer. I wanted to take as many people as possible along with me. And I don't want them just to open the book, but read it till the end. Mm -hmm. And so there's a question about which theoretical frames do you want to use? And I definitely acknowledge that there is scope for other ways and other, other audiences 
so if you target another audience, you use another, you can use different theoretical background. Um, so I agree we should have, uh, we do have to have, um, 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 yeah, whatever you want to call it, um, a change in the power dynamics between those who hold uh, the means of productions and those who don't. Uh, and uh, I think the inequality, I discuss in my book inequality in personal wealth, mm. but I uh, have a colleague who started to tell me, yeah, actually the inequality in um, in business ownership is even more unequal. So apparently there are, there are people now gathering data on how the distribution of uh, the ownership of in, well, so say shareholding, et cetera, is distributed. That's even more unequal. So I do think the old categories of, uh, I call them the political economy categories mm. of capital, labor, and so on, we have to bring them back. It's not, Actually, it's not just Marx who had them. There's a whole tradition of other thinkers too. Um yeah, but I I don't think most people would say if you use that terminology, you are you are that's enough to be qualified as a communist. Well, I suppose you know because in one part of the book you say that communism is an economic system with political implications, whereas libertarianism is a moral principle that should first of all guide the design of our economic and social institutions, and secondly, our own personal decision making. I suppose I see that. I suppose the way that I see it is that there is no getting around the political implications I of agree. either libertarianism yeah. or communism. Yeah. So I think actually libertarianism is definitely not uh, ambitious enough for what we need. I totally agree. I, I think I also say so in the book. I just think whatever else we disagree about, and we, I don't mean everybody in society, I try to argue, let's agree on this. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, yeah, and then the question is, okay, when we agree on this and we agree on some other things, I think we should also agree on uh, staying within the planetary boundaries uh, and so a, a form of ecological sustainability. Um, then the question is, okay, what kind of economic system do we want? And then uh, it might be that the economic system that I will ultimately defend might be what you call communism. That's possible. <laughs> but yeah, I, it, so I, I do think we need a mixture of different types of uh, ownership. And it's clear that the current type of corporations we have, both the way they're run and the political influence they have and the inequality it generates is just uh, morally indefensible. Coming back to the way in which people become excessively rich, the way huge fortunes are made. Do you think that there are certain things which shouldn't be allowed to be turned into a commodity at all? So there, are the, the, uh, there is actually a whole literature and philosophy on uh, the moral limits of the markets where this question is uh, debated. So I think, for example, um, and many of these discussions have to do with the body. So there's a whole question about sex work slash prostitution and all these questions like, should this be? Uh, I think the ones where I think the, uh, for the world as it is, not for some hypothetical work, world like uh, selling kidneys, I think, for example, is a really, really problematic one because given the world as it is, it is really um, a, a, ro a route to exploitation of very vulnerable people. So these are the ones that are actually widely discussed. But I guess you're more thinking about healthcare or, uh, yeah, I think healthcare, the media, I think... Land? 
Yeah, land is a good one. Because yeah. they're not making any more of it. Yeah, I should say I haven't thought properly about land. But it's a very important question. Yes, land. Yes. And um, yes, no. <laughs> Work for me to do. <laughs> Thinking about land properly. And the other one is really, um, but I also think healthcare, actually, childcare. We've seen uh, countries that moved, that took childcare from having it organized by um, the commons, people themselves, or by. Um, by the government or in a very hardly regulated way in this kind of a mixed system and then moving it into commodifying it. We've seen uh, what it does. Uh, wages, relative wages go down, working conditions become worse. And in the case of anything to do with care and care of people and health care, the problem is that um, you can't really um, qualify, uh, there is there is an asymmetry between the person who needs that thing and the person who will provide it. And if you then have a profit motive that is that is a dominant motive or yes a motive, it really and they puts the quality of the let's call it the service of what you're going to do into danger. So in the case of childcare, um, yeah, if you um, hire people who have to work much. Uh, many more hours or in bad circumstances or you cut down on uh, how you the rooms you have it's clear that the childcare is going to be worse than if you have it uh, outside the markets so I think there's loads of things that should be outside the markets I mean so coming back to our Beyonce JK Rowling I mean I love Beyonce and in some ways I couldn't live without her but I think that technically I could survive even if she never made Lemonade, which is still a stunning <laughs> album, right? I could I could live without that album, but yeah. I can't live without food. I can't live without yeah. shelter. I can't live without healthcare. I can't live without energy. Um, is this the difference then between something which can be subject to market forces that you can profit off of yeah. and something that you simply shouldn't? Because I hear what you're saying, the need, the asymmetry yeah. of need when it comes to care means that it shouldn't be turned into a commodity. It shouldn't be turned into a for-profit service with the same not apply to housing. Yes. So this is great that you're raising this because um, there is a distinction that actually comes from political economy, which is the needs uh, versus, we could call it wants, things that you want, but that are not needs. Uh, distinction that got totally lost in contemporary economic thinking. So in economic thinking, which basically has taken over the way uh, the culture of society and the ideology, we have a thing called preferences, taste or preferences. And uh, we don't argue about preferences because uh, allegedly uh, all our preferences are just equal, but and we should just respect whatever people want. But uh, this this is, I think, deeply problematic. And I agree with um, some ecology, ecological economists like Ian Goff from the uh, who, who works at at the LSE and some other people who've really argued that we should bring the distinction between needs and wants back into thinking about the economy, and then you could make those arguments. And I agree, things that are needs like all the things you mentioned, uh, should not just be given to the market. But that that doesn't necessarily mean they should be 
uh, provided by the government. It could be, we have multiple ways to provide this thing. One is heavily regulated by the market so that the profit mo motive is uh, put into its cage. But there the question is, of course, is this possible? That's an, in, in part an empirical question. Uh, it could be the government. There, I think the problem is sometimes the government is actually, uh, I mean, we've had scandals. Uh, I mean, we had in the Netherlands a very, very big scandal about uh, providing for subsidies for uh, childcare where people were, I mean, this is, the, I think, the biggest human rights scandal that the Netherlands had in its own nation over the last year. There was also a big uh, racism aspect to it, ethnic, ethnic profiling. So I, I have also a bit lost my belief in that the government is going to um, be the solution to all these things. But then there's, of course, the commons, people just organizing themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, we should, for each of those different uh, human needs that we uh, need to be met, we have to ask uh, which would be the best system of provisioning. And also, there may be an argument that you might need different systems because they might keep them, they might work as checks and balances on each other. I mean, on that point, one of the things which I always think when I speak to people who would describe themselves as social democrats is that you had quite strong social democracies in Europe when there was actually existing communism in the USSR, right? That was sort of a stick disciplining the Western liberal democracies and disciplined them into sort of having a different balance between labor and capital. You also had much higher union density. I mean, you know, this... This is beyond the scope of this book, mm -hmm. but do you think that in a way capitalism is at its best when it's actually quite scared of communism? Hmm. So I don't know whether I would agree with the what you seem to suggest as a causal reason for social democracy in Europe, namely that it was uh, that there was uh, it was between the U.S. a more pure form of capitalism and the and uh, Eastern Europe and the USSR, I just think there was, the ideology at the time was different. So if you read historians of, um, historians who describe how we got into having this form of neoliberal uh, capitalism, they say that there was really a fight of ideologies after the war and those who wanted Keynesianism and hence social democracy won. But the neoliberals were active from the 30s. Mm. They just had to wait till they could seize power. So I, I think, um, uh, I, I also see that those who are now, this may be a judgment where you might disagree, but where, where I think that those who now really give me most hope in terms of uh, really trying to work for an alternative of neoliberal capitalism, it's a wide range of views. I mean, like Kate Rayward's donut economy. Mm -hmm. I don't think that would qualify as communism, no, no, right? No, 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 no. no, no, no. <laughs> so, uh, but I think um, she's her views are definitely uh, against neoliberal capitalism. Definitely. So I, I, I'm. So the question is, this is a question about your theory of change, right? How do yeah. we get out of this? Um, I've put my cards on this group of uh, alternative views akin to uh, the donut economy. There's a whole range. Um, 
But for me, you you talk about that post-war moment as being a battle of ideologies. And of course it is. There was a huge divergence of ideas. For me, what dictates which one wins is the material conditions mm-hmm. of which an aspect is that communism actually exists. Yeah. You've got all of these demobilizing soldiers across Europe entering into what? Yeah. You know, that's the classic pre-revolutionary moment which had to be contained. Yeah. yeah, you might be right. I really don't know. But I mean, I also don't see how, uh, suppose this analysis is correct, how it gives us um, the tools to know what to do now, except if you believe which is, I don't know what I think about this, that we need to have a stronger group of people who really argue and start to build communism so that then this will actually help uh, those of us <laughs> like me who want uh, some form of green social democracy. Well, I think that's what Zizek would think, right? I don't think he's an actual communist. He just thinks that in order to have social democracy, you need communism somewhere. That's yeah, his sort it's of theory. possible. I really don't know what I, I don't know what I think of this. So there is, uh, in in recent political philosophy, in the kind of tradition in which I work, there is a really great book by uh, a Canadian political theorist called Tom Mallison, who really rejects the dessert thinking completely. They are, uh, Tom, is a, um, Tom is a democratic socialist, the way uh, they describe this. Um, and... Um, yeah, so I I I I met Tom uh, two weeks ago, and I said it's actually nice for me that you are to the left of me because then when I get questions from journalists, I say, look, there's this other position. <laughs> so this is all, of course, about what is the range of things about which we can have a political conversation, and what I really find very important is that those of us who think neoliberal capitalism is really just we should get rid of it. Of course, we have to think about strategies. But what I've seen also in leftist activist group is that people then start to have infights. And I just think, look, that's what they would like us to do most. Three leftists, four opinions. Exactly. And But then they fight. And then the super rich and the, the oligarchs and the... Uh, those with corporations will just uh, laugh and say, let them fight. They are then harmless for us. So, but then of course the question is, and there there may be real disagreements, how far do we want to go away from uh, neoliberal um, capitalism to another system? You know, I was talking about this with my friend at the weekend. So shout out to Barney. But one of the things that he said is that a good rule of thumb when you're in the middle of some sort of big leftist bun fight is ask yourself, would the CIA want me to do this? Ah, yeah, yeah, and if yeah. the answer is yes, <laughs> stop, stop <it>. doing it. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, coming, coming back to the idea of limitarianism, does the principle of limitarianism exist between countries as well as within countries? Because of course there are huge wealth inequalities here in the UK, yeah. but even the poorest person in the UK is taking up much more of the carbon budget than the average person, say, in sub-Saharan Africa. Yes, you're totally right. And um, I should say there are current uh, debates or uh, politicians in in the UK and Europe more broadly uh, who argue also for uh, reducing inequalities and have all sorts of proposals. And sometimes I really miss an acknowledgement of the international dimension. And I should say that in this respect, uh, I discussed the studies uh, 
uh, done by Jason Hickel and his co-authors. And it's just like, it's not just that, like, say you have Amazon, uh, where the people in the, the what does he call them, fulfillment centers, the warehouses, uh, get like w bad working conditions, bad wages, etc. And Bezos takes like all these billions. It's not just within a, the UK or a country, but even on a global scale, we really give breadcrumbs to those who produce our 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 uh, mobile phones and our clothes and all the rest. And the rest goes. I mean, they go to the, the north. They go to the global north, but then they go also to those within the global north that have most money. So we should actually also have um, a conversation, not just about inequality within countries, but also globally. And here I, I'm kind of a bit pessimistic because I'm worried like um, how, how far this is, how much people are really willing to have this conversation. Um, but it is, I really believe that in the global north, perhaps everybody, but definitely the middle class, but even much more so the, the super rich, they live on money, um, that they have, um, yeah, I would really want to use the word stolen mm -hmm. from, from those who in this global production uh, get the breadcrumbs and also from the future. But th the problem is the more you think about this, the more you see how deeply, deeply unjust the situation is. And what I just encounter is that most, most uh, citizens are so far from the, this analysis that, that the question is how do you kind of get them into that conversation? That for me is an important question. And so if I refer if I just reverse back to you, how do you get more people involved in that conversation? Yeah, so that was for me a reason to try to write this book with as little uh, theoretical uh, commitments as possible, eucumenial, if you want yeah. to say, and also to try to write it in a way that I hope is really accessibly written and also to bring in all these examples. Um, and yeah, that is... Um, I, it's not for me to judge whether I, I succeeded, but I, I think there is, there is, of course, you have all these theories about um, a kind of uh, political avant-garde who mm. will then uh, take everybody along with them. But I do think definitely because uh, in formal democracies, the voting system is really a system in which you can change things. But if the majority of people really start, uh, are mainly drawn into discussions about um, about, uh, yeah, what I think is everything to do with uh, scapegoating, like talking about all these endless discussions about um, um, refugees and about migrants and about uh, so-called woke topics. Mm. We, talk, we don't talk enough about the economy. And I think that is, for me, very important to make it clear to, and people also tend to, they may ha be unhappy, but they may not have the analysis why they are unhappy. And unhappy is actually, they may be uh, dissatisfied with the way they're. And so I, for example, I think the, the, um, the, the, the data that are widely spread among inequality analysis and political analysts on, on how much of the share uh, that labor got from production in the past, how that has diminished. 
I think most workers don't know. I mean, is is there a a you know like this book is predominantly about inequalities in distribution, mm-hmm. but I was just thinking as you were talking about inequalities generated by production, and I was thinking about it with regards to the fact that in the global north, often the very cheapest things you can buy are the most carbon intensive and ecologically degrading, mm-hmm. right? If you're poor in the UK, it is very expensive to buy vegetables and oil and cook them from scratch yep. in your home. It's a lot cheaper to get some chicken nuggets from the takeaway. And if you are poor, that's what you'll do because that's what you can afford to do, yep. right? It's also a lot more ecologically damaging to do it that way. In order to buy clothes or things to have in your home, it's much cheaper to buy something from fast fashion or single-use plastics than it is to buy something that's going to last forever. And I don't think it's it's right to almost wag the finger of mm-hmm. shame and tell people you should be more ecologically responsible yeah. because they're buying what they can afford, yeah. right? But it's also a, a global inequality that is, is re-entrenched through the condition of being poor. And I suppose how does the philosophy of limitarianism address inequalities of production as well as inequalities of distribution. Yeah, so I I, I think, uh, so I want to say one thing about the, the, mm. the case you just mentioned and then answer your question. So the that is the reason what you were just describing that the poor really can't live ecologically sustainable lives because they don't have the money. That is one of the reasons why we need something, whatever you call it, the Green New Deal, where the social and ecological come together. I've really been convinced by research by people like Fergus Green, who works here in London, uh, that we can't separate those two. Um, I mean, you gave some examples, but I think a really interesting example is uh, in places where people drive cars. I mean, the what the, the green uh, well-off people now do is they buy electric cars, and it's good. But people who, who who don't have money can't buy an, an electric car, so that's that I think is so the social social inequality and ecological inequality should be analyzed together. Now your question about production, I I actually agree um, with well I, you raise it as a question, but you could also say it as a as a criticism that oh, there's no really big analysis of production, which I think is would be a fair criticism because. In the end, the distribution of money is is the symptom. It's actually at the same time the symptom and the cause of further bad things. Mm-hmm. And I analyze it in the book as the cause of further bad things, the um, the undermining of democracy and all these other things. But it is, of course, also the outcome of a system that is an economic system, production system, that is deeply unjust. But in that production system, the... Um, the uh, there are distributive effects in the production system, but many of the things you 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 uh, we discussed earlier um, can come together. For example, the fossil fuel industry. Mm. I think the theoretical arguments really give us good reasons to want to nationalize the fossil fuel industry. So I've also written a, a quarter to paper giving those arguments why we should do this. However, it depends on, um, because we now actually have a lot of nationalized fossil fuel industries in the world, 
in, say, Saudi Arabia, Qatar and so on, it's not as if these countries are like scoring very well on uh, keeping the oil in the ground. So um, it depends again on um, what we can expect from the government. So yes, um, but but still, I think the the arguments are really that as long as something like the fossil fuel industry um, is um, organized around the profit motive, we're not going to solve this problem. See, you are a Marxist after all. Um, I don't <laughs> care what people call me. You know, I really don't care. Um, so I suppose my final question, if you could get one idea from this book implemented tomorrow, which one would you pick? Yeah, so I, I think this may be perhaps a surprising answer, but I think the first thing we need to do is, uh, if it's about really implementation of concrete policies, it is closing tax havens and really um, regulating the flow of money, of capital in the world. Because as long as we have that, uh, it's going to be difficult, even if we were to have the political majority to change things, to um, to implement uh, more egalitarian um, uh, policies. But that is at the level of policies. But what I really think we need in society is to have a much more intense... A political conversation among all people about about what kind of society do we want and what is the economic system that fits with that society and really to bring the discussion about the economy and political economy central stage in the political discussions and yeah that's why I'm trying to make a contribution well we definitely agree with that thank you so much Ingrid Robbins for joining us today thank you Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.